Today's reading is Luke 18, verses 31 through 43. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Those who Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So currently we're in a series, we've kind of been this, this series for this year that we've titled A Beautiful Risk. And it's, idea, it's the idea of taking the risk to see where love takes us. That as we are a people marked by the love of Christ, by God's love for us, then we can then really embody that love in the world. And to see what God might have for us as we are people marked by that love and embody that love um, in the world around us. Now we've, we've just said that, that that larger risk kind of begins with three main risks. And that's the risk of letting God love us, the risk of loving God, and the risk of loving your neighbor. And currently, we're in that, that first risk of the risk of letting God love us. Because it really is a posture of letting God give to us what he wants to give. It's an openness to receive from God with trust the love that he wants to offer. And that's what we're talking about this morning. And we're talking about a text that I actually love. And it's a text we've talked about and we've preached about. Um, but when I'm thinking about letting God love us, this text comes to mind um, immediately. And it's one I've reflected on quite a bit. But not so much in light of, of this topic. So the text is from Luke 18. What I'm going to simply do is um, just kind of walk through the story a bit and then kind of talk about some specifics of how I think it reveals to me, at least the way that that um, God shows his love to us through Jesus. And if you kind of want to follow along, it's on page 878 in the Blue Bibles in front of you. That's Luke 18, and we're going to focus on the verses 35 to 43. So the stage is kind of set with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, going through Jericho, and we're told that Jesus is walking, but we're told there's this blind man, and that he's a beggar. And he's on the side of the road. 
Now, this road might look like, like just a, a dirt road, right? He's just sitting, and, and there's really nothing around him. Maybe this is a place other people, poor people, congregate so that when people pass by, they can actually ask for money, for something. But he's blind. He can't see. But he hears something going on. He hears all this commotion, which is really fascinating because here's this blind man who's literally listening to the world passing him by. And he asks people, he says, well, what's going on? What's all this commotion about? And people say, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And now this blind man, he must have heard about Jesus. He must have been aware of who Jesus is. Because he can't help but shout, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people are like, shut up. Don't cause a scene. Be quiet. But he won't stop. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stops the crowd. And he orders this blind beggar to be brought to him. So this blind man, who was shouting who knows where, he didn't necessarily know where Jesus was, but he was shouting. Jesus hears, stops the crowd, orders people to bring him forward. The blind man comes forward. He's face to face with Jesus, though he cannot see him at all. And then Jesus simply asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, as we read this text, it's easy to read it quickly and to go through it as if one thing happened after another. But it's really amazing because the instigator of the action up to this point has been the blind man. But then all of a sudden he comes to Jesus, and it's almost as if the action stops for a brief time when Jesus poses this question, what do you want me to do for you? The first words out of Jesus' mouth in this encounter. I'd like to think that the blind man was sort of caught off guard by that question. Because maybe it just seems so obvious what he would want Jesus to do for him. But maybe it caused him to consider, wait, what do I really want Jesus to do for me? But then he answers, he says, Lord, I want to see let me see. And Jesus responds, well, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well, and the eyes of the blind man open, and he sees before him the person of Jesus. And then we're told that the blind man then follows after Jesus, praising the name of God. And then the people around him, after they saw what God had done, began to praise him as well. It's a very simple story. But I love the question that Jesus asks the man. What do you want me to do for you? And it's in this question that I see an element of God's love for us. And the reason why I think it's so profound to me that Jesus asked the question is because it's through this question that Jesus actually 
brings this blind man into relationship with him. Now, Krista Tippett, who's the, the host of the most wonderful podcast titled On Being, and she's probably the best, or at least one of the best. I'm gonna, she's the best. I can own it. She's the best question asker ever. Like, if you listen to her interviews, what's very clear is that sometimes the guests are boring, but she never is. And the reason that people are boring is because they don't, they don't actually have answers that are necessarily able to meet the standards of her questions. And, and I, she says this, she's in her book, Becoming Wise, she says, generous listening is powered by curiosity, a virtue we can invite and nurture in ourselves to render it instinctive. It involves a kind of vulnerability, a willingness to be surprised, to let go of assumptions and take in ambiguity. The listener wants to understand the humanity behind the words of the other and patiently summons one's own best self and one's own best words and questions. And she continues, generous listening, in fact, yields better questions. And if I've learned nothing else, I've learned this. A question is a powerful thing, a mighty use of words. Questions elicit answers in their likeness. And then their answers mirror the questions that they rise or fall to meet. So while a simple question can be precisely what's needed to drive to the heart of the matter, it's hard to meet a simplistic question with anything but a simplistic answer. But it's hard to resist a generous question. And we all have it in us to formulate questions that invite honesty, dignity, and revelation. And there's something redemptive and life-giving about asking a better question. Now, this question that Jesus asks this man, I believe, is tapping into the dignity and the humanity of this blind man. What I see in this question to the blind man is an incredible interest that Jesus has for this person. What do you want me to do for you? He's interested, actually, in what the blind man might say, because I don't take this question as rhetorical. I don't actually think Jesus is asking the blind man the question to think, oh, I wonder what he's going to say. I hope he has the right answer. I think Jesus is actually interested and therefore invites the blind man into a relationship that Jesus is assuming some sense of vulnerability. Because what would Jesus have done if the answer was different? He's really interested in what this blind man actually wants. And that to me shows me through Jesus that God is interested. But there's also a level in this question, in this encounter with the blind man, where we see that God's love is not simply interested, but it's also non-coercive. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, that God's love isn't forced upon this blind man. That Jesus doesn't just assume that he knows what's actually best for the scenario. Well, the man's blind, so obviously what he probably needs is to regain sight. So then Jesus kind of wields his power to just change this man's life. But that's not how it goes. Jesus is actually interested. Jesus invites the blind man into the conversation, and it's non-coercive. Now, I, I see this also in the stories before the story in the blind man in Luke 18, 
and in the story after in Luke 19. So at the beginning of Luke 18, before this is the encounter with the rich young ruler, in which, in which a rich young ruler asks Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him what to do. Follow these commandments, and the rich young ruler says, well, I have, I've done all those. I'm good. And then Jesus says, well, there's one thing you lack. You need to sell all you own and give to the poor. And the rich young ruler then walks away. Jesus, his love toward people is so profound and non-coercive that he lets someone walk away from him. Rick Watts, an Old Testament scholar, has said one of the most profound things for me. He says, God loves us so much that he lets us say no to him. God's love is is non-coercive. And then in Luke 19, we see this moment with Zacchaeus, the beginning of, of Luke 19, in which Zacchaeus is so small that he's actually so small and insignificant, he can't even be one of the crowd because he's so short. So Jesus comes into town and he sees Zacchaeus looking for him, hanging onto this tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, I want to have dinner with you. Which sounds really intrusive, but in a society in which hospitality is a really profound sense of connection, what I think Jesus is doing is showing his humility in saying, Zacchaeus, I want to receive from you. So in all of these stories, we see a God whose love takes an interest in people and is humble and vulnerable and non-coercive. And that to me is profound. And engaging God in that way for me has been significant. Now, why is that? Why is it so important for me to believe that God's love is a love that takes an interest in who we are and in who I am? Because it takes seriously that I'm a person. It takes seriously that I'm an other from God. And that God actually wants to involve me into engagement and participation in a real relationship. I mean, do you believe, you, all of you, do I, do us, do we believe that God is really interested in us? Do you believe that God is really interested in who you are? What you want? What you think about? What you're interested in? Is that a picture that you have of God? Because I really do believe starting with God in that way changes so much of how we relate to him. The fact that God is actually interested. Not disinterested, but interested. Because if you're with a person who's interested in you, isn't there some sense of it being disarming? That you actually feel like you can be yourself? That you don't need to be anything other? Or that you can actually share who you are? But an interest also, I think, has the ability to reveal. When someone takes an interest, it has the ability to reveal who you actually are. The fact that Jesus takes an interest in me, in us, asks us the question, what do you want me to do for you, suggests that I think my answer to that question or my answers to that question might suggest something about me that I wasn't even aware of. So God's love takes an interest in us, but God's love is also relational. 
that God and Jesus and their relationship to us is, wants to be in a relationship, and it's not simply utilitarian. Imagine the inverse of this encounter. Instead of asking a question, if we were to take the exact opposite of what Jesus might have done, it might have gone something like this. The blind beggar goes up to Jesus. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus then says, here's what I want you to do for me. That's not what Jesus does. That's not where Jesus starts. Isn't that crazy? But I go into my relationship with God often in my relating to him, and I really, or I don't, and I'm afraid to, because I'm afraid that's actually what's going to be said. I don't want to engage God because I think his first movement toward me is going to be like, Daniel, here's what I want you to do for me. Instead, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? That is so crazy. That's, that's just nuts. Because it's totally opposite of how we often relate in our spiritual lives to God. And therefore, we don't. Why would you want to, be, why would you want to meet with someone, have coffee, when the first thing you do when you sit down, someone says, well, here's what I want you to do for me. Honestly, that's like so exhausting, Right? And you know you have all those people in your... I almost said like an address book or something. What the heck? (laughs) So in our day and age, you you don't have any of those people in your phone because you've deleted them all. Because you don't want to hang out with them. You want to hang out with people. You want to engage people who actually take an interest in who you are and might want to get to know you. Well, that's what God desires, is to get to know you. See, God offers his love because that is what God does, or who God is, and that is what God does, is he offers his love. The John 3, 16 verse, for God so loved the world that he gave, right, his only son. I think sometimes we think God loves so that in the end we would love him. But it's not manipulative that way. God just gives of himself. I recently watched the film Lion, which is actually up for best picture. And it's a really powerful film. There's this one relationship, though, between Saru, who's the main character, this child who's actually lost at a train station, and is lost for about 25 years. He doesn't even know where home is. He, he can't, he literally... Who's so little he mispronounced the name and has no idea how to get back. So he's lost as a child on this, in this train station, ends up in Calcutta, and then ends up actually being adopted. And I'm not giving anything away. It's like a true story. You could, it, so I'm not, I promise, no spoilers. Um, and so anyway, he, he, gets, he gets adopted by this family in Australia. And he grows up with this family. And then he begins to realize he can't actually exist without knowing where his family is, what they're up to. He can't actually exist believing that his family doesn't know where he is. And so he wants to get back to them, and he wants to find them. But one of the most powerful characters for me in this film is actually Nicole Kidman's character. And she's the mother who adopted Saru. 
And she loves him so much that she simply lets him, lets him go. I mean, imagine a mother who's, and I know some of, many of you, right, foster care adoption is not far removed from our church. So many of you are involved in this, so I'm sure this feels so real. Um, and it's not my personal experience, so it was really profound. But here's this mother who adopts this kid, who gives him so much love, who then toward the end of the story is trying to figure out what he wants, what he desires, if he needs to go home, if he needs to stay. And he's actually so afraid of how Nicole Kidman is going to respond to him that he doesn't actually tell her what he wants or what he's up to trying to find home because he's afraid that he's going to disappoint her or he's afraid that, that he's going to seem ungrateful so he kind of, he engages Nicole Kidman's character with this. And Nicole Kidman's like, Saru, like, I chose you. I could have had kids, I chose not to, because I wanted to give you a home. I love you. I just, I want to know you. Like, I want to be involved in what you're doing. Saru was so fearful of how he, would be, how he was presenting himself to his, to his mother that he actually, I think, cut off the possibility of relationship for that period of time. When she didn't want him to be feeling other things or desiring something different, she just wanted, she wanted, she wanted to show her love to him and to be helpful. To me, that's a pr- profound picture of this type of love that just gives, that is non-coercive, not manipulative, and simply says, no, I want to love you. I want to be in relationship with you. So let's start with, what do you want me to do for you? 